Good evening, everyone. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And a very uh, good evening to everyone who's joined this uh, chat, which is let's talk about COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, this is uh, Kairi Jamaluddin from the Ministry of Science, Technology and Innovation. Also with the COVID uh, immunization uh, plan task force. And uh, we have a panel of uh, experts joining me today. Uh, to discuss the rollout of the National COVID-19 Immunization Program, which, as you know, will start on the 26th. And the first batch of Pfizer vaccines will arrive on Sunday, on the 21st. Uh, so tonight, uh, just a bit of housekeeping. Um, Dr. Helmi uh, will be, Dr. Helmi from Seri will be uh, moderating. Uh, he'll introduce uh, the panel and uh, we will try to go on for about uh, 90 minutes, if not more, if there are questions and if it's uh, very exciting tonight. Um, I've also said in Twitter that uh, this is on the record for media organizations to report. So everyone on the panel uh, is on the record and the rest of the housekeeping, I will hand over to Helmi. Over to you, Dr. Helmi. Thank you very much. Assalamualaikum and good evening, everyone. As YB said, we are here today to talk about vaccines. I think there have been quite a few chat rooms over the past few days, just looking through Clubhouse, talking about various aspects of the vaccine. But we are quite lucky today because we have various individuals who have been involved in the procurement, in the decision-making, and eventually the dissemination of the vaccines in Malaysia. So I'll just do a quick round of who's here today. And as uh, well, we all know who Kyrie is as he's introduced himself. We've also got Tansri Jamila Mahmood, who is the advisor on public health to our prime minister. We have Dr. Kalai, he's the director for the Institute for Clinical Research. Dr. Akmal, who's the CEO of the Clinical Research Malaysia, which is an institute under the Ministry of Health. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Giri, and he's an infectious disease physician over at Kota Kinabalu in Sabah. I'll be here wearing my hat as a respiratory physician, and really the plan today is to talk about the various aspects of vaccines, including the safety, the rollout plans, and anything that comes to mind. So I will get things rolling by getting the conversation started. And the idea is maybe in about 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so, I'll get folks to raise your hands. And what we can then do is get various feedback or questions from the floor so that we can then talk about stuff that people want to listen to as well. Now, the thing about vaccine is it's actually, a, to me, a bit of a scientific miracle because it's only been about a year and we've already got a working vaccine that has been introduced, not just, um, well, it's going to be introduced in Malaysia, but it's been introduced in various parts across the globe. And it's been a long journey. So I think the first thing to do really is to invite Kyrie to speak again about the journey so far. You know, what's been going on so far? How did all this start? And what can we expect when the vaccine arrives on Sunday? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Hilmi. Yeah, that's probably a good place uh, for us to start, uh, how this all started and uh, where we find ourselves uh, today. So around about um, April of last year, uh, we had a first meeting, which was between uh, the Ministry of Health, my ministry, as well as the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, Wisma Putra. Um, then uh, at that point, uh, no vaccines had been approved. It was very early days, but uh, we started hearing about the development of vaccines for COVID-19. So we decided to have a working group uh, among the three ministries to reach out uh, because we knew then that we did not have the capacity in Malaysia 
to develop end-to-end -end, uh, and manufacture human uh, vaccines for human, for human beings. Uh, so we knew at that point that we needed to uh, move what I would call science diplomacy or vaccine diplomacy uh, in reaching out to other countries as well as to reach out to manufacturers. And at this stage, there was, uh, there was nothing, no clinical data, nothing. Uh, so we got in touch. We got in touch with uh, countries. We had bilateral discussions uh, with countries like China, with uh, the United States, with the United Kingdom. These were countries that we had uh, some intelligence uh, telling us that they were manufacturing vaccines and they would be among the first countries to cross the line first. Around about um, uh, October, uh, September of October, we started negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies. At this point, uh, none of the interim clinical data had been published yet. So it was very much uh, making bets. And uh, there were some countries who were able to make big bets because uh, they, they have uh, greater financial resources than us. And you have to understand some of these vaccine contracts uh, that uh, the pharmaceutical companies prepare um, really uh, ask you to lock in to what's called an advanced purchase agreement, where you put down money for something that has not even been approved or not even been fully uh, manufactured. So uh, around about the middle of uh, last year or towards the third quarter of last year, we were in the situation where we had to start making some educated guesses about which vaccines we would go for. It was around about this time that we set up the, the vac vaccine access committee that uh, is jointly chaired by Dr. Adham and myself, the health minister and myself. And under that committee, there's an expert working group that's chaired by Dr. Kalai, who's the director for the Institute of Clinical Research. And that's why he's on the call uh, today. And that's where they started advising us about which ones to prioritize. Uh, and of course, then we started uh, negotiating with Pfizer, we negotiated with AstraZeneca, with the COVAX facility, with some of the Chinese manufacturer, with Gamalia in Russia. And uh, now we have a portfolio of vaccines. Um, that uh, fast forward to, uh, to this week, uh, the delivery of the first of the vaccines that we've procured, as I said, is from Pfizer, that comes on uh, Sunday, and it will come in batches. Every two weeks, we will get uh, a new batch uh, from the factory in Perth in, in Belgium. And the other vaccines will, uh, will come on stream after it receives uh, approval from the regulatory agency NPRA. However, the Sinovac vaccine will arrive in bulk on the 27th of February for it to be uh, finished, still finished here at the Pharmaniaga uh, manufacturing facility. That's, that's quite a long journey and what I feel is quite interesting is the whole concept of making educated guesses at a time when there were so many variables out there. Dr. Kalai, could you, could you perhaps share with us how you came to make the decision of what type of vaccines to choose and how did you come up with this portfolio of vaccines that we now have access to? Uh, thank you, Helmi. Um, and thank you for the very kind introduction uh, by BKJ. And uh, he's right to point out that uh, under the committee chaired by both uh, himself and the health minister, there are various subcommittees that look into many aspects of uh, vaccine selection as well as uh, how the virus itself is uh, behaving itself. Now, under this uh, committee where the selection of vaccine is made, there are uh, sort of many specialists and experts who sit in this committee, and they come from various aspects of the, uh, the pathology that we need to understand about COVID-19. 
and also how vaccines are going to perform. So we have infectious disease specialists, we have public health specialists, pathologists, geriatricians, pediatricians, we have clinical research, and those come from ethics as well, from the pharma industry, and as well as independent people from the academia outside and inside of the government, private sector, and so on and so forth. So we've had a robust look at uh, many of those uh, clinical trials that have come our way. And through that, we are able to recognize some of those elements in the uh, phase one and phase two trials that were published, and also look at the way the conduct of the phase three trials were being held. And one of the things that was happening around this time of this pandemic was the way the rolling reviews were happening, at least in the regulatory element. And some of those uh, manufacturers and scientists made available much of their clinical trial data and also their protocol. So by just reviewing this for the early onset, we could uh, look towards some of the better vaccines that were being developed. And certainly we could see the way the uh, mRNA vaccine came forth uh, towards the Q3 and Q4 of last year. We saw the um, inactivated uh, um, vaccines being developed as well. And we also saw the viral vector coming on board. One of the things that we look forward to in all of the uh, trials, and certainly these are interim kind of phase three results, but still valid enough to monitor, was their safety and their efficacy uh, results they reported. And when you find that they have crossed a certain threshold of safety and efficacy, then certainly these vaccines can be considered, despite the fact that there was a bit of concern, they were still in the phase of the phase three. But nevertheless, we are beginning to see their publications. They've seen how that uh, there has been a very consistent information sharing between these developers and what has been published. And so on the portfolio that was selected, there was consensus based on uh, certain criteria we set up. This criteria is based on 10 points that the WHO itself has uh, set out to be, that is to meet at least the 50% efficacy uh, threshold so when we find a vaccine that meets this criteria and also these uh, 10 points uh, that are set by WHO, we could then look into the uh, vaccine and look at the data and then bring this information to the joint committee for the presentation and for the committee to make further recommendations henceforth. So that would be the way that this committee has worked. And we do it weekly with the knowledge that uh, the country requires uh, overview that is seen as independent as possible. Thank you very much, Helmi. Back to you. Can I just clarify? So if you talk about an efficacy of 50%, does that mean for every two individuals who get vaccinated, one of them will be protected and the other one may not be? Uh, not quite the way that, of course, is quite easy to interpret that way. But efficacy is based on how you would uh, look into your trial design. Now, uh, there's a difference between how you interpret efficacy versus uh, sometimes what we call as effectiveness. But essentially, uh, we look at what we say as the primary endpoints. Many of these trials were set up initially to look at uh, no COVID symptoms at all. But of course, once you start to break it down into mild, moderate, and severe, then the efficacy varies. And depending on how the trial is designed, when you put all the three uh, levels together, sometimes your efficacy looks to be very low. But essentially, the main point that we deliver from this vaccine is that it prevents severe form of the COVID, and certainly you don't want death to occur. And this is what 
most vaccines have done, and certainly we have seen that in the trial as well. You're right to point that uh, a person who is vaccinated would have uh, a 50% reduction of the symptoms versus someone who did not receive the vaccine or a placebo. This is how it is interpreted in a trial. But depending on how the major portion of these vaccines is eventually delivered, this efficacy value will certainly change. So in a controlled environment, we refer it to as an efficacy, like in a trial. But in the real world, we call it as effectiveness and how the vaccine really helps to contain the disease and the transmission. So that's how we need to interpret it. So there is the studies that are being done from the companies last year, and then now that they are being introduced, we can also look at more studies with regards to how it's introduced in real life. Dr. Akmal, is there any studies being done in Malaysia? Are there any studies that we've been involved in that could help us with regards to deciding which vaccines are best for us? Hi, Helmi. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, I think uh, most of all, we trying to make sure that uh, people understand that clinical research can be done in Malaysia uh, with the beauty of uh, Malaysia having uh, the, uh, what do you call that, uh, value proposition to offer the global community. Firstly, we are a multiracial country and uh, we have at least uh, one third of world genomics reside in the country. So these are some of the things that we go out and uh, promote Malaysia and uh, through the engagement of the science diplomacy uh, we managed to uh, get in touch with at least around 30, 33 companies uh, to discuss about COVID-19 vaccines, uh, clinical research. And we are very grateful that there's one uh, that is uh, coming to our show last uh, month, starting with the Institute of uh, Medi Medical, sorry, Institute of Medicine's uh, Chinese Academy of uh, Medicine Science. And this uh, is a very uh, interesting clinical research, which is looking into uh, what we call as uh, inactivated vaccines and uh, looking into 3,000 number of patients. And we are very grateful that uh, our nine centers that is conducting this uh, clinical research has uh, already recruited two-thirds of these numbers and uh, we are on the way to uh, complete the study. Usually clinical research uh, for vaccines are done in a multi-national, uh, multi-countries uh, in terms of the uh, clinical research. This uh, goes as far as other therapeutic areas as well. But this is a largest number of uh, clinical research uh, in terms of uh, recruitment in the country. That's quite reassuring. And I think it goes back to what Kyrie was saying about um, we, have, we have factories that are helping to fill up the vaccines, we have studies being done, so it's more than just about the procurement. Um, perhaps back to you, Kairi, I was just wondering, you mentioned, in fact, it's been mentioned a couple of times about vaccine diplomacy and science diplomacy, and I recall you having met the, I believe it was the science minister of China. I'm just curious as to, of all these interactions you've had, anyone were particularly difficult or was anyone that was particularly easy to deal with and where do you see this going down the line? So the bilateral discussions that uh, I've had with counterparts from other countries um, have been very very constructive and I must say that uh, uh, they try to be as helpful as possible. Now we have to of course juxtapose this 
with what is actually happening in reality, which is that uh, a lot of the rich countries have been cornering the, the vaccine supply. So you have Canada, for instance, that has bought enough vaccines to inoculate its citizens five times over. Uh, but uh, of course, when we have bilateral uh, discussions, uh, it, it's, it's all very um, uh, constructive. But what I can see here is that um, there is also uh, vaccine diplomacy from the big countries. So for instance, a lot of the Western countries, uh, they, they don't have much say over their pharmaceutical companies. But for countries like uh, Russia and China, and to some extent India as well, uh, they use their vaccines right now as, um, uh, as a form of soft power uh, to, to gain um, influence over other countries. Um, in that regard, uh, our discussions with China uh, and Russia and now India, um, of course, we are aware that this is a tool of diplomacy for them, uh, but the government to government relationship that we've had and the discussions, the bilateral discussions that we've had uh, has certainly facilitated uh, us securing supplies from uh, Russia, for instance, the Sputnik V vaccine. Uh, although that was carried out at a commercial level by Duo Pharma, which is a government linked company, and the Gamalia Institute, the government to government link was very helpful. And similarly with, the, with some of the Chinese vaccines as well. Um, and I think that um, many countries are uh, using uh, vaccines as, as a form of diplomacy today. Uh, so I think to answer the question, yes, it's, it wasn't just about getting vaccines. Uh, there was a lot of diplomacy and this extended to, for instance, getting our export authorization from the European Union, because recently the European Union has uh, introduced uh, export authorization requirements for vaccines. And you have to remember that although Pfizer is a United, it's an American company, but our Pfizer vaccines for Asia Pacific, these vaccines are fulfilled out of, uh, as I said, Belgium. So I've had to be, I've had to negotiate with the with the EU and with Belgium to ensure that uh, Malaysia's advanced purchase agreement is honoured by Pfizer and by the European Union as well. Patrick Jebula, how how does this experience compare with countries across the globe? There seems to be a lot of headlines in various media about how some countries are doing better than others. And perhaps for Malaysia, some are criticizing that we are a bit too late, but some are also saying that actually we are pretty decent considering there are still over 100 countries across the globe that have not received a single dose of a vaccine. Any comments on that? Samaikun, uh, thank you, Helmi. Um, I think that we are doing okay. Listen, South Korea was going to start vaccination the same day as Malaysia. So uh, if you think about you know, how advanced South Korea is, how well it's done in its uh, uh, COVID response, I think you know, to be on the same level as a country like that, I think we're doing quite okay. But the, the worry, of course, is that you know, for us to really end the pandemic, we do need to have you know, the mass population around the world vaccinated. And so far, only about 1% of the population of the world is, uh, is vaccinated. So I think, you know, we have a long, long way to go. But for Malaysia, I think the good news is we are getting the vaccines and we are starting our vaccination program. Great. You mentioned how it's important and it's, it's an imperative for us to get things moving. Dr. Giri, perhaps you can take a step back for us and share with us as an infectious disease physician, why, why the need for a vaccine? Why, how does it change the outcome of managing the patients that we see day in and day out? Um, thank you, Halmi. Um, again, um, welcome to all to the clubhouse. So um, essentially, if you, if you just take a step back, um, 
the sort of epicenter for the third wave was was Sabah itself. Um, and and from a clinical perspective, um, when you see patients and you see a number of ill patients that come into hospitals, um, you begin to realize COVID is just not a respiratory illness alone. All right, predominantly, obviously, people talk about the respiratory complications from COVID. Yes, but it's a multi-system um, com- uh, illness, so you can get illnesses and uh, complications in the heart. So you have patients who have um, inflammation of the heart or myocarditis. Um, you have people coming in with um, myocardial infarction. Um, and then uh, you have people having um, embolus or clots that migrate into the lungs, causing pulmonary embolisms. Then the whole aspect of the neurological complications post-COVID, um, the strokes, that means um, um, blood clots in the brain, um, fuzziness, um, delirium that, that is caused by um, COVID itself. And these are just the acute complications you see from COVID. Um, and there's the whole um, other component of, of, of long COVID, which people are beginning to recognize as an entity. Um, and I'm sure help me in, in your practice in respiratory medicine, you see a lot of them. So um, what we realize is COVID is just not limited to the lung. Number one, people get ill and some people get very, very ill, um, requiring um, specialized hospital care. Um, and the pathogenesis and also the, the, the whole experience of the illness itself is not completely understood. It's still a relatively new virus in uh, human population. Uh, we don't fully understand the complications that it may cause, although there's better understanding now than you know uh, nine months and one year ago. So um, knowing this, um, vaccines uh, obviously have come in the right time. They will be a game changer, but I think as a lot of public health practitioners would caution uh, it's just one piece in the bigger jigsaw puzzle. So vaccines are just one piece in the bigger jigsaw puzzle for us to get out into the other side eventually. Um, and and um, it's, at least from a, from an infectious disease perspective, um, this is really, really exciting news. Over to you, Helmi. Thank you. Uh, Elmi, Elmi, sorry, uh, sure. it's Kyrie here. It's KJ here. Can I just jump in uh, uh, just to uh, follow up on what uh, Dr. Giri said just now? Because I think he raised something very, very crucial. Um, as the vaccines are about to arrive uh, in Malaysia, uh, we are starting to uh, hear a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, a lot of it comes from, of course, uh, anti-vaxxers. But there are reasonable people who are saying that, look, because the mortality rate of COVID in Malaysia is so low, um, we don't need to take the vaccine because uh, you know most of us will probably be asymptomatic uh, carriers anyway. Uh, but um, I, I want to pick up on what uh, Dr. Giri said because as a policymaker, when he touched on long COVID, which is the long-term uh, effects of COVID on somebody who has been infected, I think that really is something scary. And, and it's, it says to me, you don't want to get COVID at all. Just because the mortality rate is low, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, it's okay to get COVID. Therefore, you need to protect yourself. And the best way to protect yourself is, is by vaccinating uh, and uh, uh, receiving the vaccine. I don't know if uh, Dr. Giri wants to touch on that. Um, absolutely, uh, Minister Kairi. So um, we know from studies, uh, people who, who just asymptomatic from COVID um, and this is early experience from China and eventually replicated at other, place other places in the world. If we just did CT scans, that means very specialized scans of the lung, uh, there are changes which are reflected in lung. These are people who are young, who are healthy, 
who are otherwise asymptomatic. Um, so this disease goes beyond um, just people who are symptomatic and who have manifestations which land you up in ICUs or in critical care. So um, I, I think it's important that you brought up the point again that um, long COVID is an issue that people are just now beginning to understand. Uh, for example, I, I'll let you know, um, in, in patients we see in ICU, who even eventually get better, uh, that the, their lungs uh, have been damaged so extensively uh, that eventually we think they're going to probably be ending up with long-term complications in the lung and perhaps um, reflected in the heart as well. So there, there are a lot of the unknowns, so to speak. We, we have come very far in the science of, of, of the disease itself, but there's so much more for us to learn. Uh, uh, and as I mentioned just now, it's a new virus. We are learning as we speak. Um, and every day we're learning something new about the virus. Um, and uh, this vaccines that we have is nothing short of a miracle, um, as Helmut pointed out just now. Coming to a vaccine within a year of a, of a pandemic um, has never happened before. Um, and, and science delivered is up to us now to sort of make sure that we get the vaccines into arms and um, we get as much people protected. Helmi, can I jump in a minute? Sure. Yeah, I think I want to build on what Dr. Giri said. I think it's not, uh, it, it, it is true that there are people who will get what we call the long COVID symptoms that he described. But let's also look at, you know, the populations at risk. We've seen today, for example, uh, the highest number of deaths, and most of them were people who were in the older age group, people with comorbidities. And I think it's really important to remember that even if you're well, you will be you know, with family members who are extremely high risk, and you've got to protect yourself to be able to protect others. And right now in the West, there's increasing reports of young children having very severe symptoms uh, and very, very bizarre symptoms as well, not like uh, the usual adult ones that are lung, uh, sort of, uh, you know, respiratory nature, but more on neurological and so forth. So as, as Dr. Giri pointed out, you know, we are dealing with a virus that is behaving in a very unusual way. And every day we're learning something new. We now have a vaccine that is effective and is efficacious towards, you know, uh, you know, helping us come out of this. And I think that uh, until and unless we also practice, you know, our public health measures, take the vaccine, get to herd immunity, then I think we will be able to protect each other, not just ourselves. Well said. That that actually brings to mind a patient I saw recently. Um, so we, we see patients at various stages of disease, but unfortunately, we are also increasingly seeing elderly patients who have never left their houses being brought in with a positive test because of contact with children or carers or loved ones who are visiting them. So you may have, once again, a majority of individuals who may not have any symptoms whatsoever, but then you can pass it on to susceptible individuals. And I even have a friend who is pregnant and unfortunately had COVID and as a consequence of that had a mini stroke. And this is someone who is roughly my age and then, you know, I like to think I'm not that old, but it just gives me that kind of, it just drives in the point that everyone is at risk, granted, most of us will hopefully be asymptomatic, but the point of prevention, the point of vaccination is to not just help ourselves, but to help the people around us. Now, a quick welcome again to everyone who's joined us. We have got about, let me have a look, 3,000 folks actually. And that's something else that would have never have happened one year ago, 3,000 people spending a Friday night listening to people talk about vaccines. So it's a good sign, I would hope, 
and what I would like to remind everyone is in about 15, 20 minutes or so, I'll, I'll open the floor for questions. But next, for, I would like to perhaps invite someone on the panel to perhaps talk a little bit more about safety concerns with, about, with regards to the vaccine, because it's obviously one of the more common questions that come up. Things like mRNA, is it safe? Is it going to change our DNA? Is there going to be any adverse side effects and what can be done to prevent those? Any takers for these questions? I think Dr. Kalai and Dr. Akmal can take that. Go for it. Hi, Hilmi. Um, maybe I'll go first and then uh, Dr. Kalai will be uh, explaining more. Uh, before I go there, I think uh, we are dealing with a different virus at the moment, which uh, gives a creeps in you because it acts in so many organs and uh, the pathogenesis, what we call as the understanding of the, the, the infection itself, is still new and worse that uh, we know that it affects in multi-organ. And this is because of the receptors that uh, they work on, uh, which is available in any organ in the body. Now, this is where vaccine is very important to be part of the public health system to, uh, to, to, to address the issues with regards to reinfection, especially for those that you, you, that you love one in, and the elderly and those who are in the, what we call as um, at risk. Now, coming back to the safety of the clinical research, every clinical research is designed in a way not only to address the efficacy through the neutralizing antibody or the uh, number of the T helper cells that will be produced, but it also address the safety of the patient itself. And uh, those, uh, what you call as uh, volunteers that enroll in clinical research, thank them, they, that's how we get uh, a better understanding of each particular uh, vaccines and take mRNA for that matter. The technology was being developed many years ago and when it comes to this time when we understand well that uh, the mRNA vaccine is about changing the messenger of the uh, RNA sitting in the ribosomes that helped to change the way how the body reacts to the development of the uh, immune system. So back to the safety itself, not only the mRNA studies, but any other studies that uh, do looking into the new vaccines uh, or the old uh, vaccines for that matter are looking into the safety reporting, whether you are in the, what we call as uh, moderate, severe or mild, uh, diseases. This is very important because uh, we grade this safety reporting uh, through whether they are severe, they are mild uh, in terms of grading of uh, grade one, two, three, and four. But most important thing is that to see how tolerable this uh, vaccine is in the group of population. And that's how we understand that the vaccines well, we can't say that 100% safe, but it is tolerable to the human mankind. And that's why companies like Pfizer, like uh, AstraZeneca and the rest that has been mentioned in this program, uh, 
uh, uh, confident to, call, to, to market their product and to register it to, for use in their public health. Dr. Kalai, if, if there was a patient in front of you who said, I'm just scared about this vaccine, I'm scared I'm scared I might get some sort of side effects, what, what would you say to that patient? Uh, thank you, Helmi, again. I think to follow up on what uh, Dr. Akmal has said, I think there are enough evidence from the uh, preclinical studies and the clinical trials itself to hint that there is uh, hardly any ever death reported in this particular trials that is directly related to any of the vaccines. That's very reassuring in the sense that uh, in all the trials that uh, has been reported, of course, there are uh, incidental death in any trial, not necessarily only in a vaccine trial, but the main consideration always is causality. And uh, we did not see that in these trials and all the trials that has been reported as far as causality. So that is a very reassuring element. In terms of side effects, I think many of these side effects are expected as what uh, we tend to experience with uh, many other vaccination. They tend to be very local. Many of them tend to, of course, uh, report uh, uh, local side pain. They tend to have some redness. And some of those uh, uh, individuals also reported uh, the skin being looking a little bit rash, otherwise uh, looking a bit more uh, puffy than normal. But overall, many of them, of course, uh, reported some form of uh, systemic changes. And these are typical of most vaccines anyway. They, they feel a bit tired or fatigued, sometimes, of course, accompanied by headache. And, and, and when you have fever and responding to the vaccine, chills tend to follow. But these are almost always expected. So as far as safety is concerned, the vaccines that are made available now are very, very safe. And this we have seen even in the rollout where millions of doses have been administered to people. And we have yet to see these uh, red flags for all sort of uh, worries, except perhaps, of course, uh, anaphylaxis. Now that is, of course, now recognized as a contraindication for those with previous history of uh, anaphylaxis, because that has become obvious in the rollout of these vaccines. This in a trial, of course, we do not have the benefit of millions of doses, but these are the sort of things that the pharmacovigilance and the surveillance that follows in the vaccination will highlight. And thus far, the uh, vaccines have gone really well on the ground level. We have seen reduction of the disease, at least in those who have received the vaccines. We're seeing data coming out from some of the countries with advanced uh, vaccination of their population. Particularly the elderly uh, folks are seeing less uh, of the severe disease and hospitalization. So that's very, very encouraging. And let's bear in mind, these are vulnerable population. They are considered elderly, even in many other countries, you realize that they started with the most aged population, 80s and 90s, and they've worked themselves downwards to about 60. So if we find that these groups are relatively uh, not impacted by the side effects uh, that we are always uh, hearing in the mass media or the social media, then you can be assured that, uh, you know, a person in front of me will be assured likewise. Thank you. Back to you, Helmi. Maybe one additional fact that uh, when a product is marketed or vaccine is marketed in the, or used in the members of the public, there are a system what we call as pharmacovigilance that actually monitor uh, the uh, effect of the patients or any adverse reaction, any side effects that uh, needs to be reporting. And all these data are captured in a central body in 
Malaysia, which is called Madrag, uh, in a in a long way to say it is uh, the uh, Malaysian Adverse Drug uh, Reaction Committee, and this committee uh, will receive all, all these complaints, all these uh, side effect, uh, what do you call that, uh, reporting, uh, to be understand and uh, studied to make sure that there is no new unexpected uh, reaction that we see in the vaccine. So to put all in a nutshell, even though the vaccine is uh, marketed and used, there are a system of pharmacovigilance that uh, monitor the safety of the uh, vaccine in the general public. Tell me, can I build on that, please? Um, you know, it, it, there's a wonderful uh, vaccine tracker. I'm sure many of you may be following on Bloomberg. And to, today, there are 193 million doses that have been administered across 87 countries. And that's roughly about 6.5 million doses a day. And that's incredible. And we, we would hear, you know, if there were serious adverse effects that, uh, you know, have arisen. Because that's a large number of vaccines that have been given. You know, I'm thinking back about, you know, when we first had the smallpox vaccine vaccine. Um, the ones who are young in this uh, room will not know because they probably never had one, but I've had the experience. But when it was first rolled out in the UK, you know, people, mothers were hiding the children up the chimneys because they were so scared of the uh, smallpox vaccine because it was new. But, you know, uh, now it's eradicated. So what I'm saying is that, you know, vaccines are a very essential uh, tool in the armory of the public health uh, system. And, you know, with all this modern research done, and as Helmi mentioned in this, at the start, about the miracle of these vaccines, the collaboration and scientists all coming together to build something, a, a vaccine, a, a number of vaccines uh, that will be useful for, for all of us. So I think, you know, we've, we've got to put things into perspective. That's a large number already being rolled out. I'm just uh, going to add on something, uh, Hilmi, before I think Gary wants to say something as well. But, um, you know, we've been watching this rollout uh, throughout the world, as uh, Dr. Jamila said just now. So one benefit of not going first is that we get to see what's happening elsewhere. And um, we've heard news reporting of people fainting. There was a nurse who fainted when, when she got the uh, first jab. There was news about some deaths in Norway in an in a, um, elderly um, care home. And, uh, you know, I, I immediately will send a WhatsApp message to Dr. Kalai at odd hours of the night saying, what's going on here? And I think I'd like to get back to what he said just now. He always reassures me by saying that um, we need to establish causality. There might be incidental deaths, you know, the just naturally occurring um, uh, mortality. For instance, in the Norway case, these were very frail, very old people who received the vaccines and may have passed on uh, for, for other reasons, uh, not directly linked to the vaccines. So uh, causality is very important. And uh, I think when we roll out the program in Malaysia, there will be people who um, inevitably have some uh, adverse reaction. There will be adverse events, but we have to establish causality. Everybody 
uh, a lot of people are going to be saying that the adverse event is because of the vaccine. So somebody who gets sick will say it's because of the vaccine. Somebody who crashes his car will even say it's because of the vaccine. Uh, but I think it's very, very important to let the experts look into the cases uh, during this case or the, during the phase of, uh, of surveillance of um, uh, adverse effects uh, following immunization or AFI. Uh, to establish causality. But uh, coming to my point, uh, we discussed this at Cabinet and we recognize that we have to reassure the public that uh, in the rare event that there is a serious adverse effect, uh, we have to provide something uh, for uh, the, the public or for the person who's had that adverse event. Some countries have set up a vaccine injury scheme. In the UK, there is one. Singapore has just announced one. Uh, so Cabinet has agreed for, uh, for us to come up with a COVID-19 vaccine injury scheme that will protect uh, people and that will provide for an, an excretia payment uh, for people if they, it's found that there is a causal link between their serious injury and the COVID-19 vaccines. I just wanted to put that out there. Thanks, Kyrie. Maybe it's a good time to see if there's, there are any raised hands. Um, let's get Izati up. Hi there, thank you for raising me up as a speaker. Um, I guess my question, um, there's two of it. So the first one being, I'd like to get some clarification on what the NIP defines as essential workers. Considering that it, they are in the second group of the first phase, the vagueness of it all opens up room for potential abuse, which may lead to a breaking of um, public trust. So I understand that this group will be updated from time to time, but who does it refer to currently? Um, my second question is with um, the technology involved. So given the potential endemicity of COVID-19, what is the government's current plan and capacity in developing an integrated health information system that cuts across the public and private sector to ensure a long-term COVID vaccine coverage. Thank you. Thank you. So we're moving on to issues of dissemination now. Um, so any takers for that? Yeah, let me take the, the question about uh, essential workers. Um, we had a meeting of the CITF, the COVID uh, Implementation uh, Task Force uh, today. And we had a long discussion about uh, the definition of um, essential workers or rather frontliners. I wanted more granular detail from uh, both uh, the Ministry of Health and the other uh, agencies as to what, um, what defines frontliners. Uh, front, um, front so we have clarity and transparency because this is an issue of uh, prioritizing people. And I think the public deserves to um, understand what uh, frontliners are. So for I think uh, the medical frontliners, uh, this, is, this is quite clear. These are people uh, who are in the health sector who are uh, responsible for looking after patients in health facilities, uh, looking after uh, specimens, uh, disinfecting facilities, uh, looking at uh, public health, uh, uh, field exercises. Uh, so we have about 300,000 uh, what we would call pengurusan uh, dan professional sector kesehatan, which involves uh, medical officers, which involves um, pharmacists, pegawai uh, signs, and this also includes the paramedic and auxiliary staff of the health sector, which is nurses, uh, medical assistants, uh, X-ray assistants, ambulance drivers, cleaners uh, at hospitals. So. For the health sector, it's quite comprehensive, encompassing both the 
public healthcare system as well as large parts of the private uh, healthcare system. For the other essential workers from the non-health sector, at the moment we are looking at uh, uh, agencies who have um, personnel that deal with a lot of people at the front line. So the agencies that we have shortlisted for now um, are the police, uh, the prisons department, the immigration, uh, the fire and rescue services, uh, RELA, uh, the armed forces, as well as the uh, national welfare department, because we have welfare officers going door-to-door uh, -to -door delivering uh, food baskets. Uh, so this is, at the moment, the list that we have for non-health essential workers. Now, I receive, on a daily basis, appeals from different groups to be included uh, in the first round of uh, vaccinations in phase one and to be included as, as essential workers as well. So I've had requests from, of course, the Ministry of Education for teachers to be included now that schools will be opened in, in March. I've had requests from places of worship saying that imams, priests, uh, because they lead congregational play, uh, prayers, they are exposed to a lot of people. I've had appeals from the transport sector, from cabin crews, from pilots, from people who are involved in shipping to be included as well. The issue we have now is uh, supply, a shortage of supply. If we can get uh, uh, clearance from the regulatory bodies, from NPRA, uh, to uh, approve um, some of the other vaccines that are ready to come, for instance, Sinovac, Sputnik, then we can start including more in the list of essential services. Uh, but uh, I, I want to also uh, put out a caveat that um, in order for us to make a decision on these essential services, we have to run what is known as a risk assessment on all these groups to see how at risk they are in discharging their duties um, uh, in being exposed to a COVID-19 infection. Uh, so at the moment, uh, as I said, it's, it's your police, your immigration, Panjara, Bomba, Rela, Tentra, and JKM, as well as the health sector, that will account for about uh, 500,000, half a million, which is our target. Uh, but again, the list will evolve from time to time as we perhaps get more vaccine supply uh, on tap. Um, that's really, this just reminds me of some of the questions I was asked before about the need to vaccinate non-Malaysians and also whether or not there are issues of trust amongst non-documented foreign workers. Is this something that you'd like to comment on? Yeah, I will be happy to comment on that. But I think there was a second part to the question from Izati, which is quite an important one that I thought maybe uh, Dr. Kalai or Dr. Uh, Akmal will take, but uh, do you want me to, to take your question first or do you want them to answer her second part of her question? Um, since I've got you already, why don't you go ahead okay. and then we'll get Kalai, Dr. Kalai right. to, yeah. Great. So, so as, as we as said, as said earlier as well, we're, we're not safe till everyone is safe. So I think we, let's acknowledge that we have a large migrant population here. We also have refugees. Uh, and uh, they have also been infected by uh, COVID-19. They're also at risk. And a lot of them are working, you know, to serve the needs of 
all of us, you know, working in the different uh, industries uh, that that are important for our Malaysian, uh, our lives to to go on. So the government has announced that there will be you know access uh, to vaccines for all of them, and it will be free access, which is, I think is a really uh, excellent move. Um, now on the issue of undocumented, undocumented migrants and perhaps even refugees, obviously uh, there may be some apprehension, there may be fear, but uh, as YB Kairi has announced recently, there was a decision also by uh, the government that you know undocumented migrants will not be uh, arrested if they come forward, and uh, that you know we will find a way for them to then get documented and some amnesty provided. Uh, to them. And I think this is very important. Now, having said that, uh, if I was an undocumented migrant, I'd probably be very nervous if I saw someone like a policeman coming to take my registration. So this is where I think we need an all-of-society approach. What we're trying to do is also work with you know, civil society organizations and agencies that have been working with them. UNHCR, IOM, you know, some of these agencies know where they are. A lot of the civil society organizations know where they are. And I think we've got to go and talk to them, you know, get them to speak to people who are familiar uh, and have engaged with them as well. Uh, I think we've got to convince them uh, to get the vaccine because it is all for everyone's good uh, that we do that. So, you know, I think uh, in, in our um, planning in the COVID task force, and there's a very uh, significant uh, attention being paid to making sure we have the right volunteers coming on board and getting civil society organisations on board as well. Before perhaps um, Dr. Akmal or Dr. Kalai takes the question on the integrated uh, information system. Uh, so um, what we're doing is we're building a back end uh, to the COVID-19 immunization program. Uh, and this will be a huge database of essentially 23 plus million people uh, who we hope to vaccinate. Uh, together with details of which vaccines they've taken and together with surveillance detail, because we're, of course, going to start uh, following up on AEFI. Uh, for, um, in addition to this, there's also genomic surveillancing, because uh, we will start doing genomic surveillancing uh, on, uh, on uh, the uh, infections to ensure that um, there are uh, no mutations, no variants in, 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 uh, in Malaysia. Uh, so this huge back end will um, assist us and be shared with the private sector in the event that uh, COVID is endemic. And a lot of people have said that um, herd immunity may not be possible and that uh, we are stuck with COVID-19. It, it will continue to mutate. It will continue to change. Uh, it will continue to find ways to be resistant to, to the vaccine response. Um, and if it is endemic, then, uh, of course, uh, we will have this huge database that we can uh, reach out to again and, of course, follow on uh, from uh, the surveillance phase of the COVID-19 immunization program. Dr. Kalai, Dr. Akmal, would either one of you want to address the second part of Izati's question? Okay, uh, Dr. Hemi, yeah, thank you. So perhaps I can just give a brief on it because uh, certainly I don't have the real insight into this integrated system. but. What it does is it brings together the information on the disease status of, uh, for example, as you now recognize, uh, we now know there are positive cases, new cases being discharged, and there is those who are uh, managed in ICU, and there's a report of death and so and so forth. So this is updated on a daily basis. And certainly when the uh, vaccine is rolled out, 
the information at the back end, as what uh, our minister has said, is tied together with the rollout phase. So that uh, the population is able to infer directly from this information system and keep up to date on the uh, happenings about both the vaccines as well as the disease status of the country. So this is how the information system is to be uh, rolled out during the pandemic status. I can only comment on the application of the MySajatra that actually capture the vaccination for every particular person. Apart from that, there is also a Bitcoin that actually uh, technology that actually looking at what and when vaccine is delivered and to whom. But most important thing, it is blockchain. Dr. Blockchain, blockchain. Yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. Bitcoin line. <laughs> You've been investing in Bitcoin, have you? <laughs> I back up on it. But having said that, that there is also the, uh, what you call as a manual, um, what you call that uh, recording of uh, each particular person that received the vaccines. We are fortunate that we are not only relying on one particular vaccine, there are many other vaccines that, is, uh, pro that we are procuring, and uh, they are inclusive of uh, two doses, single dose, and it suits in many types of people, uh, for instance, those who may only come once and may not be able to come again, then they probably will be having uh, a single dose uh, vaccines. But like what uh, Minister Hairi said earlier, it all depends on the uh, supply. At the moment, the demand exceeds the supply of vaccine production in the world. And this is where the challenge is to get the vaccine uh, in our shores. And we are very fortunate, very lucky. And I think it, there's a lot of works behind it to get the vaccine to arrive next Sunday. I think that's absolutely right. I think there are so many stuff going on behind the scenes, but that's also why I suppose we're all here today to share some of that. I brought up Teacher Raj, who has raised his hand. Uh, Teacher Raj, would you mind asking the question as well as who you're addressing the question to? Please go ahead. Sure, thank you. Um, good, good evening, YB, KJ, and esteemed physicians and experts. Um, actually, this question is to YB and also the experts. The first question is, by when do you think, is there a time frame that the government is setting by when all Malaysians will have access to the vaccine? Would that be 6, 12, or maybe within 24 months? But I also always get this question asked with the communities we work with in the B40. Is there a specific play, plan to reach out to the bottom 40%? Because many times they don't have access, let's say, to some of the hospitals or the information or the facilities where these vaccines will be available. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Teacher Raj, uh, for the two questions. I always remind my team every day that vaccines don't save lives. Vaccinations do. Buying the vaccines uh, was, um, it wasn't that easy, but it's, it was the easy part of all of this. Getting those vaccines into people's arms, now that's really where the game is. Uh, and, and that's really where we have to um, uh, go beyond expectations and, and deliver for, for Malaysians. Um, when uh, will all Malaysians get access to vaccines? That's a tough question to answer because the supply is not something that uh, we control. But if all goes to plan and uh, we give speedy 
expedited regulatory approvals without cutting quarters. And the manufacturers are consistent with their delivery and, um, and stick to the delivery timeline in the contracts that we have signed with them, then I think, I think we can get it all done by December. Now in the book, of course, it gives a buffer of two months. It's one year up to February. It started off at 18 months and PM said, no way, that's unacceptable. And we moved it to, to, uh, to 12 months. But if the supply is uninterrupted and goes uh, according to plan, then I think with the throughput that we are calculating at each vaccination center, reaching up to a peak of about 150 to 160,000 vaccinations per day, if that can happen, then we'll get this done by, by December or earlier. Um, and, and that also depends on, on how um, we handle this on the ground, whether the vaccination centers are 24 hours, how much resources we throw at it. Um, and that's something that we will continue to, to revise. Specific plans for B40? Absolutely. So part of the uh, registration exercise is, of course, uh, asking people to register. Uh, but we're not going to wait for people to register. We're actually going to have a massive outreach campaign, especially to marginalized communities, whether they are B40 or whether they're people who are in the interior uh, areas, uh, whether they are people who are from marginalized communities, like what Dr. Jamila said just now, undocumented migrants. We have to go out there and, and reach out to them, uh, educate them about the vaccines first, because uh, that's uh, the first that's the first issue that, that, that we want to get clear, that they need this to protect themselves and others, and then bring them out for registration. So um, we are thinking of things uh, from empowering community leaders, empowering Ketua uh, Kampong, empowering NGOs uh, to go out there and to reach out in this mass outreach campaign to give confidence to these uh, communities uh, that uh, the vaccines are safe and that they are absolutely essential uh, to keeping everyone safe. And also it's very important, vaccine equity is, is important. So how we design the vaccination centers or the immunization centers will also be very, very important where we place them so that they're not too far from some of these communities. And if we can't uh, have or we can't establish vaccination centers near them, uh, how we deploy mobile vaccination units that uh, DG Dr. Hisham said uh, today um, to them. So I think uh, one of the problems that the United States is facing, for instance, is vaccine equity. Those uh, from the poorer communities are missing out on the vaccines. So how we design the, the immunization program from the communications campaign, from the outreach to where we uh, establish these immunization centers will be very critical in us uh, making sure that vaccine equity uh, is, uh, is a guiding principle in Malaysia's immunization program. Um, help me if I may build on what YB Kairi has said uh, for teacher Raj. Hi Raj, how are you? <laughs> um, I, I think that we have a clear registry of the B40 in some of the ministries. So at least we are not starting from zero. Uh, the other point is that uh, 
Malaysian Ministry of Health has a very good experience with mass vaccinations. It's a, you know, and our health system is a very experienced in managing vaccinations. So, but in some communities, I think you know we will require again. It's about partnership. It's with civil society, with 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 the private sector, with others who can actually reach. And as uh, I was said just now, that you know, even for example, people in the interior. We probably need to prioritize single dose uh, vaccines for them rather than the two dose vaccine. So I think, you know, we've got to take all these, uh, you know, situations, the context that people are living in, and then tailor the vaccination programs accordingly. Thanks for that, Tansri. That actually brings us nicely to the one hour mark. So I do hope that um, uh, you all are aware that you know there are plenty of raised hands. I'll try to go through them as many as possible with what time we have. But at some point afterwards, I'd also like to get a team to talk a little bit about the whole issue of anti-vaxxers because we've been talking a lot about why we need vaccines and the importance and whatnot. But I think there's also a lot of misinformation out there that we need to address. Having said that, I'd like to invite Nadia to ask her question. Thank you for allowing me to ask. So actually, along the veins about um, anti-vaxxers, uh, I think one of the things that uh, could incentivize people to take up the vaccines is by telling them, um, you know, what they would gain from actually being vaccinated. So how will the policies actually change as more and more people in Malaysia get vaccinated? Will there be a clear framework communicated? So for example, once we hit 50% of the population vaccinated, maybe masks are only required on public transport. Um, and if uh, we hit 80%, perhaps we don't need quarantine anymore. Um, will there be a, a framework and will this be communicated to the public? That's my first question. The second question is also uh, around disinformation. And I think the major issue is that many Malaysians actually do not understand um, some of the science that's being discussed. So will we look at making basic life sciences education at least compulsory for students until up to the tertiary level? Because I think in this day and age, if you have a person who graduates from university, but they don't understand basic things about their own body, like DNA and mRNA, so can we really call them educated in the first place? Thank you. Thanks, Nadia. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that uh, first question since that's uh, policy and uh, maybe the experts can, can come in uh, later. Um, as far as a framework uh, of an exit policy is concerned, yes, um, we will want to communicate uh, certain privileges or certain normalcy that can be restored uh, once uh, there's adequate or good coverage of the vaccination. However, this must be based on science. So the expert working group will continue to monitor what's happening in other countries uh, to see whether or not we can dispense with non-pharmaceutical interventions like wearing of masks, like uh, physical distancing, uh, etc. Uh, but uh, I think uh, it has to be done on an equitable basis. Uh, there is talk um, now about, uh, and I, I read um, an article in the New York Times just before coming on to Clubhouse, uh, that uh, there is a country which is considering privileges given to those who have been vaccinated and uh, denying privileges to those who have not been vaccinated. Now, this raises a big ethical problem uh, because, uh, first of all, there will be those people who cannot be vaccinated uh, because of underlying health conditions, people who are immunocompromised, uh, the jury is still out on, on pregnant women. Uh, so um, you discriminate certain people 
so uh, if it is done equitably in a sense that guys, if we reach 80%, uh, we can start having more privileges. We can start dispense with MCO, PKP. That is something that we are willing to consider. But again, uh, it's early days. We still don't have enough data about whether the vaccines prevent uh, transmission. Uh, we know that the vaccines are very effective in, in preventing the severe symptoms or outcomes of COVID-19. Uh, but as far as uh, sterilizing immunity, we're not quite sure yet. So we'll continue to monitor. In fact, I had a conversation with the Singapore foreign minister yesterday, and they are still trying to understand how to open travel bubbles with other countries. Uh, they're not uh, ready to do so yet because they're still monitoring uh, the, uh, the, the data uh, the effectiveness data from their uh, immunization program. Dr. Gimi, do you have any thoughts with regards to the second part of the question about how we need to perhaps do a little bit more of education, both at schools or at the public level when it comes to science? Um, thanks, Salmi, and, and, and thanks, I think it's Nadia, was it? I, I think it's a, it's a really good comment, and, and, and definitely... Um, um, as a as sort of a medical practitioner, you you would love the sciences to be delivered um, to a, to a level when you're starting off from school and going up obviously to secondary school and then to universities. There should be at least some understanding of what has come out uh, from the syllabus in school, um, and and um, and this hopefully is translated to adults being able to sort of understand the concepts, the basic concepts at least. When it comes to the, the, the life sciences which um, which are involved, um, taking on this opportunity uh, uh, since I'm already here, uh, I, I'll just perhaps for 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 the for the benefit of uh, the others who've not understood how the mRNA vaccines work. Um, so it's basically a piece of 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 um, um, the spike protein, uh, which is a component of the coronavirus. Um, it, it gets translated in the, in the ribosome of the cell, which is in the cytoplasma. Um, and this produces um, the component of the spike protein, which is then recognized by the human immune system, um, uh, which produces antibody both um, uh, the B cells and also um, um, T cells. Um, and this sort of provides immunity to the, um, uh, to the virus uh, if it comes along and if you are exposed to the virus later on. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who always ask, uh, would, this, would this sort of change my genetic composition? Uh, I think it's important to recognize the mRNA that's not going to the nucleus where the DNA is stored. Um, so it, there's absolutely no chance that there's going to be a change in genetic material for one person. And after the mRNA sort of does its job, it gets degraded um, and it's, it's, it's um, no more in the body. Um, and the other thing that people often ask as well, um, would I get um, COVID from the vaccines itself? Um, the answer is absolutely not because um, the vaccines are making a component of, of the virus which is recognized by the immune system. Um, it's not making the whole uh, virus. So there's absolutely no chance you're going to get COVID from the vaccines itself. Um, thanks and over to you, Helmi. Um, perhaps while I've got you talking about vaccines, one question, Giri. Um, there was a comment earlier about how there are increasing cases amongst children. And I think one of the common questions I've received is whether or not we should be introducing vaccinations to children at this stage. But I, I believe this, the studies are not too conclusive about that. Is that correct? 
Um, you're absolutely right, um, Helmi. So um, as we speak, there are studies ongoing uh, for children above 12 years old. Uh, I think the Pfizer is conducting one um, and AstraZeneca is conducting as well. So there will be data coming through uh, for vaccination um, in children. Um, so, uh, but at least at the moment, uh, the data we have at hand uh, is for um, adults uh, over 16 years old for the Pfizer vaccine and over 18 for everybody else. Help me, can I chime in on pregnancy and the vaccine? Of course. Yeah, uh, I think that um, WHO uh, and CDC have both removed pregnancy as a contraindication. Uh, what, it, what it does recommend is on a case-to-case -case basis that uh, pregnant women can take uh, the vaccine. And in the US, uh, a lot of the uh, nurses and healthcare workers who are pregnant have taken the vaccine. It was very interesting on a call that was actually chaired by Professor Adiba to Prof. Fauci, Anthony Fauci and, uh, uh, and Dr. Becker from South Africa. They both concurred that you know pregnant women who were at risk of exposure of COVID-19 probably had more benefits taking the vaccine than not taking it. Thanks, Tansri. Isaac, I've, I've got you out. Please do ask your question. Thank you so much, Dr. Helmi, for the opportunity. Uh, thank you, all the YBs as well, Tansri. I just have a one quick question. Uh, there is vaccine hesitancy even among healthcare workers. And even there is a recent viral video from a doctor in the private sector spreading misinformation. I'd like to know from the panelist side, uh, what is the role from the government and the policies that could be uh, made to fight this misinformation, number one? And number two is uh, whether or not the government is approaching uh, key opinion leaders, celebrities, community leaders, and village heads to spread proper, correct information. And if a private company or these key opinion leaders wish to make videos for the government in bite-sized, digestible, simple information, where can they find those information? Thank you. Thanks, Isaac. Those sound like really good ideas. Yeah, so um, maybe uh, Dr. Jamila will take uh, the, the first part of the question, which is what we can do with uh, medical professionals who are uh, blatantly spreading uh, uh, misinformation about the vaccines. Uh, but on, on um, Isaac's second part, uh, of course, we will be engaging and we are and we have been engaging key opinion leaders to do videos, uh, to um, reach out to their communities and their stakeholders. Uh, a lot of this has been uh, posted already. More of it will be posted. Uh, but um, as with anything, uh, the negative trumps the positive. Uh, you know, you're getting Charlene Zukifli, Lee Chongwei telling you to get the vaccine because it's safe. Um, you know, people look at that and say, ah, meh, whatever. Uh, but you have, uh, you know, Dr. So-and-so or uh, Ustaz so-and-so saying that, you know, this vaccine is uh, Illuminati, is a microchip, is going to control your mind. Everyone's going to watch that. So we are already disadvantaged. It's an asymmetric uh, battle that we are facing right now. But I, I welcome Isaac's suggestion about wanting to uh, um, self-generate content. Uh, and that's really the best way of doing this. We can do it in government and, and we are doing it, but the, the most convincing stuff is really going to be user-generated content, especially 
when you guys get the vaccine, uh, showing people that it's safe, saying that you know you have absolute faith in science and the vaccines, and that's going to be the validation or, or a virtuous circle of validation once people start taking the vaccination, uh, the vaccines. Um, a lot of the information will be at vaccinecovid.gov.my, which is our official website. V a k s i n covid c o v i d dot g o v dot m y. Thank you. Since you've mentioned me, YB, uh, I think, you know, Isaac, you raised some really, really good points there. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do is every time there's misinformation, we need to address it. Uh, I think all of us who are in the medical professional, uh, medical profession, you know, have to have to take this on. We have to educate our 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 constituencies, you know, whether it's your patients, your families and also and so on and so forth. Uh, I think uh, on the Ministry of Health side, uh, I uh, I must say I'm not familiar whether the medical act has actually had uh, has anything on uh, misinformation because as you know social media is uh, new whereas the medical act was 1971 but I think there's a, there are channels where I think the Ministry of Health is looking into it how we can take uh, take a complaint up to MCMC and so on and so forth but I think the responsibility also is for us to continue. Uh, and uh, what, uh, for example, uh, a, a few of us are doing, Professor Adiba, myself, a few uh, women doctors have decided that we are going to set up this channel called Sense with Science, where we will tackle you know, some of these issues, whether it's misinformation or just getting people to understand why some non-pharmaceutical interventions are important, why do you have some standard operating procedures, because people see their standard operating procedures, but they don't understand why. So I think we've got to explain it using science and evidence. Uh, I'm, you know, we have a room full of people here listening in. I think we, I appeal to all of you to really you know, work with us uh, together because it really is peer pressure and it's really about you know, your circle of influence that is actually going to listen to you, not uh, just the government. Uh, and I think that it's very important that um, we got to get to that 50% very, very quickly, right? So once we've hit that 50%, the struggle will be getting the additional 30%. So I think that's where we need to really think about, you know, what aggressive tactics we will use to really reach out to, to that next, uh, you know, 30% after 50%. I just want to jump in on on uh, uh, Dr. Jamila's point just now, and this is this is a message appeal from me uh, to to doctors. Uh, if you if you see anybody, any any uh, licensed uh, uh, physician uh, that's spewing absolute rubbish, garbage um, about the vaccines, you can report them to the M Malaysian Medical Council. Uh, that's the sort of aggressive peer pressure, or peer action that we need uh, in trying to combat these uh, anti-vaxxers. I was actually just about to suggest that because as far as far as I'm concerned, any doctor who gives medical advice has a responsibility for what he or she says. And if you're giving advice that goes against signs that will basically end up with people making wrong choices and as a consequence, their lives affected, then that goes against every single oath that a doctor can potentially, you know, can, can have, would have taken. So I think we are sometimes a little bit too nice. We sometimes give a bit too much of a platform for some of these individuals. And I know sometimes it can be a little bit, it, can, it has a potential to backfire because if you look at some of these doctors or some of these individuals, they're now, you know, going for the pity card. They're trying to say that their voices are being smothered. But once again, it's not about 
human rights in terms of freedom of speech. It's about ensuring that the right information goes out. And when you're a doctor or when you're a medical professional, I think you have a much higher burden of proof and you need to shoulder that responsibility very, very carefully. Um, I have got a couple of media folks who have raised their arms and perhaps they would like to chip in when it comes to what we can do to address the issue of misinformation and disinformation. So let's bring up Tamina. Hello, hi, Dr. Helmi. So, hi there. Um, go ahead. so just a quick question, yeah, and building upon, of course, vaccine rollout being not mandatory, this is with regards to grassroots engagement of the faith-based variety. Uh, what I wanted to bring up is this. Um, in my experience of covering anti-vaxxers in Malaysia over the last five years, um, the most fascinating insight from pediatricians, family health practitioners who've gone on the record is that anti-vax sentiment and resistance was highest amongst educated upper middle class Malay Muslims due to halal concerns, as opposed to what is the common misnomer that it's actually rural folks. Um, also allow me to refer to a recent example. Uh, UK's vaccine rollout is being negatively impacted, especially Bradford currently, due to vaccine resistance amongst elderly of the Pakistani community of the Islamic faith. So with all of these factors coming into play, um, I, I love the fact that uh, YBKJ also mentioned that there is ongoing engagement to reach out to particularly spiritual figures. Um, I just wanted to brainstorm together with all the other panelists, what more can be done to address this a lot more urgently because this is going to hit us like a wave. Thank you. Thanks. Hermi, shall I Sorry. say something? Yeah, yeah please, I was gonna yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think that's a really important point. Uh, it, it was just just two nights ago. I was invited to speak to the British community about this because of this bigger big uh, challenge they have with the Bradford community, and Malaysia fortunately has the uh, fatwa council that has um, deemed that the vaccine is uh, halal and it is harus, which is uh, uh, encouraged. Uh, and in many countries around Asia as well, Indonesia and so on and so forth, they've come up with it. I think this fatwa is extremely important. The second thing is, you know, the um, Minister of Religious Affairs has also uh, been engaged and to make sure that the Friday sermons, for example, will have, you know, uh, a snippet on talking about the importance of vaccine. Because in Islam itself, uh, you know, you, it, is a, it is a duty for every Muslim to actually protect uh, mankind. So if you are taking the vaccine, you're actually uh, conducting a duty. I've been brought uh, up. In the yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just jump in here, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Jamila. Um, I, I think two points. Um, one, uh, somebody, somebody's uh, mic is on. I think Sulin, your mic's on. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, one, uh, tonight, uh, this is uh, obviously a platform where uh, I, I don't want to generalize, but I, I'm preaching to semi-converted as far as vaccines are concerned. Uh, next week, I go to uh, I go to battle uh, in in the front lines, which is Facebook. Um, I'm going to go on Facebook next week. Uh, I'm going to engage also with groups like uh, Persatuan Pengguna Islam Malaysia. They have a, a big Facebook Facebook following, a lot of anti-vaxxers there, and I'm I'll, I'll go to the lions den and and see if we can engage with the more rational voices there. Um, the other thing, and, and this is half in jest, but not really, is, um, is by example. So um, rolling out the vaccination, we've identified uh, 
politicians or elected representatives as as uh, part of the first phase, not immediately, but some somewhere in phase one. And I've said to the Minister of Religion, Dr. Zulkifli Al-Bakri, I said, uh, starts, you know, uh, you're going to be up uh, very, very soon because uh, the moment people see him vaccinated, uh, that's going to address quite a lot of concerns. So again, it's show and tell uh, by creating that confidence. Thanks, Gary. Silin, can I get you to ask your question? Thanks, Elmi. Uh, I'm Silin from Code Blue. I just have two questions for Minister KJ. Uh, the first one is, how many Pfizer doses are we getting every two weeks? Um, because if we are getting, say, millions every fortnight, then can we use up all the 300,000 plus doses in the first batch and then only give people the second dose from the next shipment? Because uh, so many things can go wrong with logistics, right? And then the second question is, when is the national vaccination program recruiting GPs, nurses and pharmacists from the private sector to be involved as vaccinators? Um, currently, MOH facilities are understaffed and overworked and, you know, they still have to manage the outbreak itself with testing, quarantine, treatment. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Sulin. So we have a schedule from Pfizer uh, that um, uh, they've asked for, for me not to uh, announce it uh, publicly. I have it right in front of me here uh, because uh, they want to make sure that they can commit, really commit to um, to the schedule that they've given us. Uh, I can give you broad strokes. So the first one's on the 21st of February, the second batch is on the 1st of March, 8th of March, 15th of March, 22nd of March. And by the 29th of March, we will have uh, 1,350,000 doses of Pfizer. So you can do a, a guesstimate based on, on that. Um, the batches are roughly similar in size. Uh, as far as the private uh, healthcare sector is concerned that conversation is ongoing right now obviously um, we would like to use private hospitals private clinics the 3000 general practitioners out there to augment uh, the national immunization policy uh, but uh, we have to uh, really go down into detail to see uh, which ones of these facilities can be part of the program. Uh, and that part, part of that is logistics as well. Uh, when you talk about the Pfizer vaccine, for the moment, it has a very, um, a, a very strict uh, storage condition of minus 80 degrees Celsius, although Pfizer has just uh, submitted data into uh, the FDA in the United States for a, for a higher temperature storage uh, threshold. Uh, but until then, we'll have to keep these in ultra-low temperature uh, freezers. So uh, again, rolling it out to GPs, do they have the necessary infrastructure uh, to store some of these vaccines? So we have to go into detail uh, to see the capacity of the private healthcare provider, uh, whether or not uh, they can augment the national COVID-19 immunization program. Can I just ask another question, um, Kyrie? What kind of safeguards are there to mitigate vaccine wastage? Because presumably when it comes to, log to logistics, to storage, there are lots of challenges there. Yeah, so uh, we've uh, tried to build a just-in-time delivery system. Uh, so we have, uh, we have data analytics looking at the demand, the projected demand, which will be your registrations, and trying to match that with the delivery schedule to ensure that the vaccines are not stored too long, whatever comes in from... Uh, from abroad, the, the imports of the vaccines are immediately deployed to the Pusat Simpanan vaccine, and from there they are deployed to the 
uh, pusat pemberian vaksin or the immunization centers. So we're trying to create a just-in-time uh, logistic system that, uh, that looks at um, harmonizing the demand and the supply. On wastage at the, at the immunization centers, this is something that Dr. Jamila and I have been talking about for a long time, um, there will be attrition based on other countries. If you give 10 appointments, uh, maybe nine or eight will show up or even less uh, for whatever reasons. Once you've opened the vial, uh, you have to use it within a short period of time. Uh, otherwise, it will be wasted. And we've seen these wastages happen in other countries. So we're putting into place protocols in our vaccination centers to ensure that uh, these um, extra doses or doses for people who don't show up are used. Uh, for instance, in uh, immunization centers, there will be volunteers. There will be your police volunteers, your RELA volunteers, your, your military volunteers, your non-medical volunteers. So at the end of the day, if there are excess doses that haven't been used, we'll just get these guys and jab them. Or we will uh, put out the word uh, through social media saying that uh, vaccine, a vaccination center X has some excess dose and you can walk in. And that's what they've done in some countries. Thanks for that. Can I invite Kylie to ask your question? Oh yeah, thank you so much. Hi, uh, YB, Kyrie, and uh, everyone else on the panel has been really informative. So uh, I'd like to ask a question that the timestamp is a little bit further into the future. Um, considering that um, the eventually we'll have enough infrastructure, enough vaccines, and at some point, let's assume all of Malaysia is already vaccinated, and there is a scenario where another version of COVID or a different time of disease happens, what kind of ideas or vision do we have from to prepare for like the next wave? If we're thinking a bit further in the future, what kind of vision for that would put Malaysia at a advantageous position to be prepared for the next round? Thank you. Dr. Jam, you want to take? Yeah, I, I would I would like to try to answer that. I think that's a very important uh, question and something we need to think about very seriously. First of all, uh, just to show everyone that the vaccine manufacturers are not just, you know, they didn't just produce the vaccines and they're going to sit back and watch. They're continually uh, monitoring, testing, and as, as mutants or variants of the viruses uh, mutate, then, you know, they will obviously have to adjust the, the vaccine so that it, it remains efficacious. So I think there's a continual process. Um, you know, I've been pushing uh, with a bunch of other friends uh, in the health uh, fraternity that Malaysia and ASEAN writ large should be looking at, you know, how do we have our own sort of ASEAN CDC? How do we become, you know, leaders in our own right in the region? Because you would have seen that SARS and other diseases also emerged from this region as well. I mean, or rather, uh, we were early in uh, being affected. Uh, I think Dr. Kalai has been in some of the meetings. There is now an ASEAN uh, public health and emergencies and emerging diseases um, sort of center being planned. Uh, and I think that the future is that we need to continue in vaccine research. We need to look into vaccine manufacture, manufa manufacturing uh, in the region and at, at home. Uh, you know, Thailand, for example, is one of those uh, licensed to produce AstraZeneca for, uh, vaccine. I think that, you know, if we can have some regional collaboration that the, a lot of these um, 
uh, expertise and you know transfer of knowledge so that you know there can be different uh, producers of vaccines within the region as well so i think that should be our aspiration to be much more able to be proactive and uh, rather than reactive on that note please let me plug in you know my favorite little topic that you know covid didn't emerge out of the blue right i mean it emerged because of the you know the way that we have developed as as a global uh, global development has really not uh, protected uh, planetary boundaries uh, increase in zoonosis so this pandemic was a question of when not if um, Singapore has already started planning about disease X, which WHO is also talking about. So I think we have to be prepared that there will be cycles of pandemics and other outbreaks uh, that we'll be having to face. One of the um, conditions or one of the, the um, uh, developments that, that came about from negotiating for the vaccine was local uh, value add. <clears throat> so for some of the vaccines, like the Sinovac vaccine, the Sputnik V vaccine, part of the manufacturing will be done in Malaysia. For now, the fill finish, but hopefully more uh, of the earlier uh, stage of the vaccine manufacturing will be done in Malaysia. This is absolutely important because this will not be the last zoonotic pandemic that mankind will face. And uh, we don't want to be in a situation uh, at the next zoonotic pandemic uh, to again uh, try to procure vaccines from all over the world. So I think we've learned our lessons uh, about vaccine uh, capacity or manufacturing capacity in Malaysia. Some of the uh, earlier um, initiatives didn't take off, uh, but I think uh, it, it is very, very important for us to look at a vaccine uh, development roadmap for Malaysia to ensure that we have uh, local capacity uh, to uh, manufacture and develop uh, these vaccines in the future. To what uh, Maybe has said, certainly the Institute for Medical Research, they have embarked on this uh, vaccine work in trying to have the capacity to develop vaccines that are well, you know, what we call Malaysian, uh, in, uh, you know, our expertise allowing vaccines to be developed. And certainly they're working together with the other institutes, the National Institute of Biotech, as well as uh, the local universities in this Endeavor. So it's going to be a long journey, certainly, but uh, with the ability to work with uh, external parties, uh, at least with the uh, vaccine technology being brought into our country, there'll be synergy to this effort by our own um, Institute of Medical Research. That'll be good for the future. I, I echo what Dr. Kalai say. We preach in clinical research Malaysia to uh, encourage our investigator to build that network with the international organization to learn and uh, to also attract more clinical research with regards to new discovery, especially like uh, developing of vaccines. But I think from the local point of view, I, I, I'm very happy to see there is cross-functional uh, activities between Ministry of Health, Ministry of Science, the Genomic Institute to understand what are the new variants of uh, COVID-19 uh, virus in, in this case. And I think that, that will be a starting point. And on the international front, I'd like also to see uh, universities or even Ministry of Health send experts or young buddies, uh, young uh, 
scientists to be trained in international uh, centers like University of Pennsylvania, for that matter, the, 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 the universities that actually, uh, what do you call that, uh, nurture a lot of this mRNA technology. This is where our neighbors in Thailand uh, are able to bring up some of the projects in Thailand and to work on their own compound. So I think it can be done. We have the brains to do it. We have the people. And uh, what it needs is a lot of leadership to drive this to happen across not only uh, multi-ministry, but also internationally. Dr. Giri, you're, you're in the front line in more ways than one, given your background as an infectious disease physician. What would you say is your greatest fear when it comes to any potential future pandemics? Um, um, thanks, Halmi. Um, I think, to be honest, we are living in the era of pandemics. Um, as as Tanshri has just mentioned just now, um, moving forward, um, um, pandemics are going to be when rather than if. Uh, we've almost built a perfect storm, so to speak, um, with land use change. Uh, the sort of bringing closer together the uh, human-animal interface um, and, and giving opportunities for spillover events to happen uh, from, from animals to an intermediary or directly. Um, and these are going to be norms of the future. So I think the preparation uh, has to be made now. Uh, moving forward, the capacity in, in all forms of the health infrastructure to prepare for the next pandemic, uh, because it, in in my opinion, um, it's it's just a matter of when the next pandemic is going to be. And if there is one in the next few years, do you think Malaysia is at the right stage in terms of our preparedness? Malaysia has had experience sort of managing um, um, spillover events and, and causing epidemics locally. Um, if, we, if we just draw your back your attention, perhaps about 20 years ago, uh, from the deeper virus experience, uh, where there was a spillover event, uh, from fruit bats to, to sort of um, the animal reservoir in pigs, which caused uh, a sort of um, a neurological sort of encephalitis, which is basically a, a inflammation of the brain um, in, in uh, the local population. So Malaysia has had experience uh, managing pandemics, uh, or at least epidemics. So moving forward, I think um, this um, experience will serve as well. Um, I think um, a lot of stakeholders have recognized in areas where we can improve and there are areas we can improve, definitely. Um, and I hope moving forward, um, we'll be in a much better position. And that's just not for Malaysia alone, it's to the whole world. Uh, because um, in, the, in the era of air travel, uh, it just takes one person coming on a plane to get a respiratory virus from, um, um, for example, in, in the depths of, 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 of you know, England um, to Malaysia. I think I watched that movie, yes. Interesting you about the uh, Nipah virus because the discovery of Nipah virus is, comes from our own uh, scientists. Yeah, that's right, uh, Dr. Amal. Can I invite Haranish Karan to ask you a question? Hi, uh, thanks for inviting me to the stage. Um, I've just got a question. I'm going to start with a, a few words on, on the preface just before I ask my question. Uh, experts are saying out there that... Uh, Post-vaccination, like like uh, YB Kari has said, um, it, it does protect against severe disease, but we're not sure whether it completely pr protects you um, um, from getting infected. So therefore, you can still transmit the virus to onto other people. And um, again, uh, the vaccine does not uh, elicit protection until about a few days after that. 
So from a policy point of view, um, I, I can sort of foresee or uh, um, envisage people, um, the public sort of um, thinking that uh, vaccinations will sort of uh, prevent you from getting infections and therefore um, they might not um, continue to adhere to uh, new norm practices that are currently in place. Um, this is maybe probably because of, of uh, people just tired, pandemic fatigue, people are just tired of uh, constantly uh, being placed uh, under restrictions, uh, practicing restrictions. And of course, that the, the misunderstanding that a vaccine is a silver bullet. So I just wanted to ask uh, YB Curry and perhaps the experts as well, uh, what can we possibly do to sort of ensure that we don't sit on our haunches, but that we constantly re uh, remain vigilant um, so that we can control this and uh, and uh, continue uh, moving forward? Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, so as I said earlier, for now, um, the recommendation will be that uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions continue. Uh, and we have to drive home this message through effective communication uh, that um, you, you still need to practice uh, these SOPs and even enforce them and reinforce this message, especially when the vaccines come out. I, I understand completely uh, the, uh, the, the, the psychological desire to want to just rip off your mask once you've been vaccinated. Um, and I think uh, it will be very, very important for us to continue to, to drive home the message that we don't know when uh, we get to that sort of herd immunity, if ever, uh, and uh, until and unless we can safely say that there are enough people with uh, an immune response, with antibodies, uh, that uh, SARS-CoV-2 cannot go and infect anybody else, then we will start uh, saying that we can do away with non-pharmaceutical in, uh, interventions, or unless there are no more cases uh, for a sustained period. Uh, but I think Dr. Kalai can update us a little bit about some of the data that we've, we're starting to see about how effective the vaccines are in preventing transmission. I think there's one country who is uh, the world leader in vaccinations, uh, unfortunately a country that cannot be named by me as a cabinet minister, uh, but that country is, 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 uh, has published some data about, um, about uh, the effectiveness of vaccines in preventing transmissions. So thank you, YB, again. Yeah, on the issue of uh, trying to uh, reduce the, the use of uh, masks and um, avoiding uh, crowds and trying to go back to previous normality, the data shows that even after you're uh, receiving your first uh, shot of vaccine, you're still uh, having some risk of getting the infection until, of course, the level of immunity renders the person less likely to become infected. So even among those who are uh, receiving the first dose, they will have to adhere to this uh, strict use of masks when they are in contact with close people. So that is important to recognize. Of course, in the long term, when there is a wider acceptance of uh, vaccines, and uh, what everyone seems to want to happen is the herd effect, where the transmission becomes uh, contained and therefore the disease therefore uh, disappears from society so that we can then have a semblance of normality and to socially interact as what has been in the past. But that is yeah. something that we all anticipate. And this is why vaccines are really necessary because they prevent. Now, I understand that there's a lot of concern that uh, people have a very mild infections. Therefore, you know, we may not need to 
getting the early part of getting vaccinated. But we have to understand that uh, by only getting many people uh, immune to this uh, virus, we're able to contain uh, the transmission. And this is what uh, I can mention the country is Israel. They have been uh, in the forefront of, uh, of their vaccination program. They started looking at the elderly folks who are most vulnerable to uh, the infection. And we have seen in the rollout that uh, their admissions for severe disease and certainly risk of death from hospitalization has reduced uh, tremendously. So between 30 to 40% reduction. This is uh, through follow-up of their cohorts where there were vaccinated uh, population and those who have yet to receive the uh, vaccination. So that is important. But also from our trials, we recognize some of the vaccines in which the uh, recipients did uh, self-swabbing. So they swabbed the uh, nasal passage and had it tested. The vaccines do, of course, reduce the viral load. As to whether it does actually reduce a symptomatic transmission, this is still, the data is out there being collected and the evidence will become clearer from all the vaccines that are being rolled out. So the uh, message is that as more people get vaccinated, then you break the transmission, and that's how that we will achieve better control of the disease. So this is uh, the way we look forward to the vaccination program. Thank you. How, how does this impact the proposal of using vaccines to facilitate travel? There are chats or conversations and proposals about vaccine passports. Is it as simple as if I get a vaccine, I can then start traveling? Um, it's not as simple as that because everyone is uh, first respond differently to vaccines and certainly the, the load of the virus one is exposed to also affects the way you, you get the illness. So currently there are trials to demonstrate, uh, this is uh, most recent from the UK in which there are healthy volunteers being exposed. So this is the first kind of human challenge that one is uh, being taken to see at what minimum dose of vaccine, I'm mean, sorry, the virus would induce an infection so that they can understand the kinetics of infection and perhaps later how the vaccine interferes with that process. So the idea of being vaccinated and to travel uh, is not yet open yet, simply because we do not understand many other elements in the way that uh, the disease is contained. But it gives an opportunity, nevertheless, for a better way to understand that travel becomes easier if we have that facility between countries. Of course, there are conversations on this, but to implement it still requires much uh, scrutiny and uh, Governments are working very hard to open up this channel, but vaccines certainly will help and facilitate this process. Thank you, Dr. Kalai. Can I invite Maradia to ask your question? Hi, everyone. Um, so basically, my question is a very basic question, but I think it's very pertinent to address um, this issue. Um, what is the government doing to address the misconception from the public about vaccines from China and United States? specifically the Pfizer vaccine, because somehow there seems to be this idea amongst laymen, myself included, that the China vaccine is not as good or as, or as quality as the Pfizer vaccine. So what, how does the government plan to address this misconception? Thank you. I think that's yours, Dr. Kalai. You're, you're the expert that advises <laughs> me on, on purchase. Uh, 
Okay, so basically uh, the way we look at vaccines is whether in the trial they prevented uh, severe disease and certainly death. That is most important. Uh, there are vaccines in which uh, you can uh, have primary endpoints to even uh, see if they develop mild symptoms. So of course uh, in the rollout of some of these trials you see different efficacy values being uh, announced and certainly uh, one of the vaccines from China uh, seemed to uh, be reported as uh, being close to 50%. But we need to bear in mind that their trial conditions were very different. They targeted healthcare workers who are the highest risk of getting infection from COVID in their trial place in Brazil uh, versus many other trial centers that uh, avoided the use of high-risk population. And as to whether the efficacy is non-comparable or otherwise, it's very difficult to interpret. But what we need to interpret always is that all these vaccines prevented one thing, death and serious illness. And in fact, almost all the seven trials that we followed up showed the same effect. So in terms of comparison, there are different ways to interpret. And certainly if you look at the Pfizer vaccine, I'm sure the Moderna vaccine, they come above the 90% mark. And some of the other vaccines came with a different level, but they come from different platforms as well. So they function differently and the efficacy points are different. But all of these vaccines have a common denominator, which is that they're above the 50% mark set by the WHO, as well as by the US FDA. These are considered one of those uh, international regulatory uh, bodies, as well as reference points for us to use in uh, accepting uh, vaccines for pandemic situation. So this misconception and certainly the idea that we assign to numbers should be inferred by looking at whether they did reduce serious illness and death. In fact, this is what vaccines are meant to do. People do get vaccines. They may develop mild symptoms, but certainly you want to avoid the worst of the disease, which is severe illness and death. And all these vaccines, whether they come from China, Russia, India and uh, America, U UK, we see the same narrative, which is that they prevent death and severe disease in COVID. And if you uh, had the uh, chance to listen to Dr. Giri earlier, uh, there are many other unknowns that we don't see, even if you're asymptomatic. So those two gets covered by the vaccines. So uh, we need to see in that perspective. Thank you very much. Nancy Jamila, do you have an idea or perhaps can you enlighten us a little bit about the preparedness of our community when it comes to the vaccine? Yeah, what I can share, I think it's essential for us to prepare the communities uh, to be prepared for the vaccines, to better understand. I think we've had a few discussions before this as well, how our communications need to wrap up uh, and so on and so forth. I think there's some basic steps we need to take. The first thing is to acknowledge that, you know, we make decisions about the people with the people. So we need to continually engage. You know, it's not just uh, the government officials, every uh, medical practitioner, everyone who is listening here, you know, uh, we need to just keep doing that. And then the other thing, of course, is maintain and strengthen trust. And this is so important. And this is not just through formal, but also informal connections. Uh, I think the other thing is we've got to go back to science. We've got to use data for decision making. And we need to use that data for any form of 
course correction as well. And I always say if you don't, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That planning must be also with the people. We've got to start this drumbeat together. We've got to manage the infodemic. We've got to really build skills, you know, in our volunteers, in our staff, in our trainings as well. And I think the, the last thing I would say is listen more and talk less. I think we've got to acknowledge that people are anxious, people are nervous, uh, and that, you know, we need to get them uh, to understand. The Ministry of Health did a survey and they found that 67% of uh, the people who responded to the survey were willing to take the vaccine. There was about an uh, equal amount, one half of which the 16, 17% that were um, on the fence, a bit nervous, anxious, needed to know more, and then an equal amount who were basically the anti-vax group. We've got to get those, you know, 16, 17% across. We've got to make sure they understand. We've got to allay the anxieties. And that can only happen when we can build trust and we have, you know, people they trust telling them uh, what they need to know as well. Uh, just Aaron, on to what uh, Tansi said. I think I, I inadvertently left out that in our country too, we have regulation and the National Pharmaceutical Regulatory Agency, they too have the expertise to review all this data, the scientific data that comes in with the registration of these vaccines. So their uh, authorization and approval is testament to the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. So uh, I think that would be the way that we can uh, articulate to the public the misconception of uh, different vaccines from different countries. Once a regulatory approval is given, this testament to the uh, safety and efficacy and also the quality of the vaccines that are made available to our Malaysian public. And thus far, if we accept uh, you know, the day-to-day -day use of almost all the medications we take, this is how the uh, NPRA ensures that uh, what is given to the public is in fact safe and efficacious. So uh, just to add on to the previous explanation, how we uh, mitigate against this uh, misconception. Thanks, Dr. Kalai. We have about 10 minutes to go, so I'm going to invite Diana to ask her question. Hello, Assalamualaikum dan selamat malam. Terima kasih beri saya peluang untuk tanya soalan. Uh, soalan saya, ada negara yang akan beri pampasan kepada rakyatnya jika alami alahan, kecacatan atau kematian akibat vaksin COVID-19. Jadi, adakah Malaysia akan beri jaminan seperti begitu atau uh, jika tidak, uh, mengapa? Terima kasih. Terima kasih, Diana. Um, seperti mana yang saya sebutkan tadi, awal dalam perbincangan kita uh, di Clubhouse tadi, uh, Jemaah Menteri telah pun setuju uh, untuk uh, kita menubuhkan satu skim pampasan uh, sekiranya berlaku apa-apa kesan sampingan yang serius uh, daripada uh, vaksin COVID-19. Tapi seperti mana yang saya sebutkan tadi, uh, dia mesti dibuktikan bahawa ada kaitan secara langsung uh, antara kesan sampingan yang serius tersebut uh, dengan vaksin ataupun causality. Jadi uh, jawapan ringkas, ya, Kabinet dah setuju uh, dan kita uh, sedang memperhalusi uh, jumlah dan sebagainya dan kita akan umumkan dalam yang masa yang terdekat. I think just to summarize quickly what we have discussed so far tonight, we I think we've gone through the safety issues, we've gone through the fact that 
all studies so far with regards to the vaccines that are going to be made available have shown that it's something that works. There is a little bit of a difference when it comes to efficacy and effectiveness, but Dr. Kalai has gone through what those things actually mean. And I think the key thing here really is to talk about the comms and the plans that the government has in place to actually give this information to all the different sectors in as many different ways as possible. So I'll ask, um, or rather I invite Ami to ask his question. And Ami, please go ahead. Uh, good evening. Thank you for uh, inviting me up to the stage. I've just got two questions. Um, what are your thoughts on the um, varying efficacy data coming out of the um, Sinovac studies? Uh, that's the first question. And the second question is, um, <laughs> do we get to pick which brand of uh, vaccine we get? Thank you. Before Dr. Kalai uh, addresses the, the um, range of efficacy for Sinovac, and I think he has touched on it a, a little bit earlier, um, uh, I, I wanted to answer the policy question. So the policy question is that um, uh, the public will not be able to choose uh, the vaccines. And, and this is the case in many other countries uh, who have procured a portfolio of vaccines. Um, and this is because one, of course, uh, it, it creates confusion if, if people can choose um, and it creates uh, possible points of bias and, and discrimination against certain vaccines. Uh, but a more crucial point here, and this is something that uh, an insight that I'd like to share while building this logistic system is that it will be a complete logistical nightmare. Uh, imagine 23 million people being able to choose their vaccines um, say everybody chooses, the overwhelming number of people choose vaccine A uh, and that runs out quickly or it's not, um, it doesn't jive with the delivery schedule. So that's really the practical reason why uh, we cannot allow for uh, people to pick their vaccines uh, and for us to reiterate the point that any vaccine that has been approved by the NPRA is safe and efficacious, even ones with lower levels of efficacy uh, they will do the job once enough people are back. Uh, thank you, uh, Webi. So uh, again, um, it is uh, just to give a, a way of uh, understanding some of those trial data. And uh, for the Sinovac, uh, they did their, their study in several countries. They use uh, Brazil, Indonesia, and Turkey. Uh, and there's some work going on in Chile as well. The, uh, just to start with, the, in fact, Sinovac is already being rolled out in Indonesia and Turkey, Brazil, and of course in China. But in their trial, they, they first reported the outcome from Turkey where they looked at about 7,000 of the trial participants and they analyzed about 1,000 over of their participants for the efficacy and they reported actually 91% for the uh, Sinovac vaccine trial in Turkey. But when they went to the data that was published from Brazil, of course, everyone refers to the efficacy of 50.4% or 50.38%. But this essentially was against uh, very mild to uh, severe disease of COVID, meaning to take overall all the symptoms of COVID. But when you break down the symptoms according to severity, the Sinovac vaccine was 100% effective against severe COVID. So that figure is somehow buried in the narrative. So people kind of uh, uh, ignore that actually it prevented 100% severe COVID. Even in the Brazilian trial, almost all the healthcare workers were their trial participants. And this data came from over 9,000 uh, volunteers in this uh, trial. 
And if you look at the mild to severe COVID, the data was as high as 77%. So this is comparable to some of the other uh, popular vaccines that are inferred in the, uh, the way the efficacy is uh, portrayed. So uh, although we are uh, bounded by what the trial data is uh, published, but if you break it down, the vaccine is in fact very effective against severe COVID and certainly the mild to severe COVID. And that's what we want, isn't it not, from the way vaccine should work, which is to prevent our vulnerable population, particularly the elderly against uh, severe disease and death. And that is how uh, the vaccine should be uh, brought into the uh, use, certainly. Hopefully with the review by our MPRA, uh, we get uh, to see some uh, favourable opinion, hopefully, in the rollout of these vaccines as well. Thank you, Dr. Kalai. And just like that, it's four minutes to 11. So I'd just like to get perhaps each speaker to give a short summary of the message or perhaps the last words they'd like to get across. Can I start with Dr. Akmal? I'll try in just one minute. I think clinical research that uh, being conducted for uh, the vaccines are pretty much uh, involving a good number of population to show efficacy and safety. Uh, the most important thing is that all vaccines that will come into the country will be evaluated not only by Dr. Kalai's uh, team in terms of the selection of the vaccines, but also our National Pharmaceutical Regulatory Agency, which has uh, great experience and uh, what we call as uh, reputation in the world to select the right vaccine for registration and for the use of our population. Thank you, Dr. Almal. Dr. Giri, would you like to add something? Thanks, Sami. Um, just, just, just a point. Um, I, I often get this question, um, which vaccine would you take? Um, is there any differences within vaccine? Um, I, I just want to tell this. Um, I'll take any vaccine offered, which is approved by the NPRE. So whichever that comes first and offered to me as a healthcare practitioner, I'll take it. And I think everyone else should do the same as well. Thank you. Dr. Kalai? Yeah, thank you, Helmi. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with what Giri is saying. I think we shouldn't actually hold out for the best vaccine. It, it's not going to be that way. We should just look at uh, what is available and made uh, uh, what we call registrable in our country through our NPRA. And when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines, I think it's so important that we Malaysians recognize time is of the most important factor uh, the fact that every day we let things uh, happen without vaccination, we just increase the risk of getting infected. And bear in mind, young people too die from COVID. This is hardly, in fact, uh, uh, elderly disease-related uh, uh, condition. We have to recognize that too. But 20% are from the younger population. So uh, it's important we get the best benefit of vaccination rather than waiting for the best vaccine to arrive. It's not worth waiting for that. Just get the vaccine that's approved. And all of us should be seen as Malaysians in getting this done for our country. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kalai. Very well put. Can I invite Tan Sri Jamila for your last words? Thank you, Helmi. Uh, first of all, I agree with everything that's been said before. I just want to add that, you know, no, we are only safe if everyone is safe. And I think, you know, the, the fact that hopefully all of us listening in today will get the vaccine. But let's also ensure that we encourage others who may be worried or anxious uh, to also get the vaccine because we need we need to get to that herd immunity. As YB uh, Kyrie said, you know, at the start, the vaccines don't save us; it's the vaccinations that will help us. 
Thanks, Sanjay. And last but not least, Kyrie. Yeah, first of all, before I, I wrap things up, uh, I wanted to thank everyone who's joined uh, the Clubhouse tonight. It's the first time I've hosted a discussion. I think at peak, we had something like uh, 3,000 plus uh, listeners, and, and that's really encouraging. So thank you for taking time off on, on a Friday night. Uh, to to listen about uh, to listen to a, a chat on on vaccines and vaccinations. Uh, thank you to the expert panel. When I decided to have this clubhouse, I thought it would be good uh, to have um, people that I'm working with in in the committee as well as uh, frontline doctors like Dr. Giri to join us uh, to give uh, their expert views and to also reassure the public that uh, policy is being decided. Uh, based on sound scientific advice that uh, we are listening to from the experts. Um, I just want to wrap things up by echoing what Tan Sri, Dr. Jamila said, uh, and that's really the slogan of the campaign. Ling, lindong diri, lindong semua. Protect yourself to protect others. Uh, it's not just about taking the vaccination for yourself, but you're actually taking the vaccination for others. Nobody is safe until everyone is safe. When you uh, take the vaccine, it's not just to prevent the worst outcome of COVID-19 for you, but it's to try to create a huge community of people who have the antibody response, who are trying to break the chain of infection so that we can end this pandemic. So it's really about not just yourself, it's about everyone else. So lindung diri, lindung semua, please take the vaccines once the registration is open in March. And thank you to Hermi for an expert job in moderating tonight. You're most welcome. Thank you. Just one last thing to say. Um, as um, Kyrie mentioned just now, there were over 3,000 folks today here on this platform. And I hope together we were able to clear doubts, clear and give very useful, insightful information that may clear rumours that you may or may not have heard. We all here have a part to play by ensuring that our friends, our families get the right pieces of information. And when we do share information about the vaccines, please do share the right positive type of information. There will always be doubts, there will always be more questions, but that's why we're here. And as Kyrie mentioned just now as well, there will be a plan to go across multiple platforms to share these pieces of information. So together, I hope we all play our part to ensure that the right information is passed on. And this will, inshallah, help in terms of improving the confidence for our vaccine program. So with that, I'll wrap things up. And thank you all for coming tonight. Have a good night. and Please stay safe.